appreciate the time that uh, Mark took to share with you what's happening with missions. We want to take the time to do that, and I hope that you see from that that what we do at missions here is a very vitally important part of this church family. And one of the unique things that I hope that you heard, but if not, let me tell you, uh, one of the unique things about what we do here in missions is that we continue to have a very close relationship with those that we send out from this church family so that we go to see them and uh, hopefully be an encouragement. We try to help them with things that are going on in their ministries. And the missions conference really is a big reunion, isn't it? where a lot of them are able to come back and we're able to kind of be reunited with them and hear what's happening when, in their lives and their families. And uh, what happens here with missions is a very personal and uh, an important part of our church family. And so uh, appreciate the time that Mark took to tell you a little bit about what's happening um, in regards to that. Well, this morning we're going to finish, finish up our short series on uh, the relationship that we have with the church. And next week we'll start our study on Philippians, which I'm really looking forward to as well. This past weekend, uh, I took the time to travel to Tulsa, where I went to see a good friend who uh, lost a very dear uh, person to him to cancer. And uh, we had a great time together, just uh, spending time with one another. And as you might expect, he asked me how things were going here at the church. And uh, one of the things I told him that I wanted to share with you is uh, how much I enjoy and am thankful for the opportunity to come up here and do what I do every Sunday morning. Uh, now, there are times that I'll tell you that the, the week is hard and the preparation may be difficult, but God is so faithful so that every Sunday when I sit right there, I can't wait to get right here to tell you what uh, God has put on my heart. And I was reminded as I talked to him what a privilege it is to do that with a church family that is so eager to listen and to learn and to grow in their faith in Christ. And uh, just there are times like this weekend that, that I'm reminded about that. And so I just wanted to tell you thank you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we opened up our series talking about what it means to court the church as opposed to, to dating the church. We looked at the importance of intentionally pursuing a meaningful relationship within the body of Christ. But like in any relationship, I think we need to know that it's okay to, to allow there some time to, to be convinced that it's a safe place. And what I mean by that is we don't expect anyone to walk in here day one and start looking for the place that they need to, to plug in the ministry. In fact, we want you to know that we want you to have time to get to know us. And for that matter, we want a chance to, to get to know you as well. And as early in the process as possible, I think it's important for us to be clear on what it is that we are striving towards. Finding out that your spouse is not interested in having kids until after you got married is a little bit too late, right? And so what we want to do is just be clear on the front end what we are striving towards as a church family. And so let me remind you about what we said two weeks ago when we started this series. We said together that we exist for the cause of Christ. Our heart's desire in this church family is to follow God so that he can build his church with his people, which he purchased with his blood for his glory. That's 
why we exist. We're the praise and glory of God. And I really do pray that we reach that place where that trust is built and we commit to pursuing that meaningful relationship with each other around that common commitment. And like the day when you walk down the aisle with your soon-to-be bride, you should enter that relationship with hope and and expectation. There should be an excitement about what God can do through, through the church, knowing that it is far greater than any of us could ever accomplish on our own. We're reminded that He fits us together, each one of us, just as He desires. And as Bob reminded us last week, that this is about something much bigger than ourselves. Which brings us to our topic this morning, where we'll talk about what it means to have continuing faithfulness in this relationship that we have in the church. You've heard it said of marriages, and, and I know this to be true, is that they only get better with time, right? Well, when we live according to God's design, that is exactly right. And the same is true for our relationship with the church. It only gets better with time. In fact, once that commitment is made and we begin to invest ourselves into each other's lives, that's where the beauty really begins. That's where the manifold wisdom of what Christ did when he put the church together is displayed in all its fullness. That is where the beauty begins. Before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do come to you and ask for your spirit to guide us so that we can see most clearly through your revelation in your word what it means to be a people called by your name in fellowship with one another to live for the praise and glory of what you have done in our lives um, through your death and resurrection and now reigning in our hearts and lives as our King and Savior. So, Father, as we look at that together, help us to understand, uh, be committed or recommitted to what it means to the to uh, live life with one another in service and devotion to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. I remember when, when Terry and I were courting each other, and we were moving closer and closer to the, the commitment of marriage. And I remember that the closer we got, the more nervous I became, because I didn't want to mess this thing up. I was doing everything I could to put my best foot forward but it's hard work to cover up all your flaws, isn't it? I think at some level we're all afraid to reveal our weaknesses to one another because hidden inside of all of us is this fear of rejection. If they know who I really am, they're going to they're gonna turn and walk away. But a beautiful thing happened when Terry and I got married. And we began to grow in our love for one another. I learned more and more over time that Terry loved me for who I was and I didn't have to pretend to be somebody that I wasn't. I was free to be the real me. And Do you know how liberating that is? 
you see, we made a commitment to each other. And there was a new freedom when I was able to be the, the real me. And I knew that she wasn't going to walk away. For richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That kind of commitment brought on a new kind of freedom and a whole new depth of relationship. And what is true in a marriage is also true in the church. But let's be honest. We don't do this so well in the church sometimes. We too easily adopt the false idea that we need to have all our stuff together or at least pretend like we do. It's important for us to have all the answers to life questions and we simply aren't allowed to struggle, at least not out in public. And if you think it's hard for you, try being the pastor. There are days that I've said to myself and to Terry, I just want to be the real me and not what I think everybody expects me to be. Have you ever felt that way? It's easy for us to to ease into this place of self-protection, guarding our heart and settling for something superficial. It's just safer that way. But we need to understand how this limits God's work in our life and in His church when we choose not to live in the light as He is in the light. And so let's look at that passage together that helps us see that unfold. Turn, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In the back of your New Testament, right before you get to Revelation, 1 John chapter 1. If you would, look at uh, verse 7 with me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We say that we have no sin. We are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If. If. It's a conditional clause. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words... Our authenticity is a prerequisite to our fellowship. We cannot pretend with one another, with our spouse, or even with God, and expect to experience the depth of relationship that we were created for. We will be left wanting, as verse 8 says, because we will only be deceiving ourselves when we choose not to be the real me. Humble, honest transparency is a prerequisite to fellowship with God and with one another. And I believe there is a a symbiotic relationship here. You cannot have true biblical fellowship with one another if you do not have fellowship with God. And in the same way, you cannot have fellowship with God without having loving fellowship with one another. There is a connection between the two that cannot be divorced. That's at least one of the reasons why James writes in chapter 5 where he says to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
But why does James say that? Do I possess something in and of myself that allows me to heal you if you confess to me? No. Especially since I believe healing in this context is, is a spiritual healing. And only God possesses that kind of power. But apparently, there is a connection between what we do with one another, confession, and what God does within us, healing. I believe this verse gives evidence to the interdependence between our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. By God's design, they each are meant to benefit the other. I want you to think about this with me. Now, this is probably just me, but I often find it much easier to confess to God than I do to confess to others. Like I said, that's probably just me. I find it okay to to reveal the sin that so easily entangles me to Him in my time of prayer, but very often I am willing, I am unwilling to have that same transparency with others. Now, why is that? Why is it easier to confess to God, the all-perfect, all-knowing, creator of the universe and judge of the earth, than it is to confess to another imperfect person, a broken vessel, like myself? Why is that? I think perhaps very often it is because the confession that we make before God is motivated more out of a desire to clear our conscience than a humble repentance of sin. To the point that if we are unwilling to confess to others what we have spoken to God, there's a good chance that whatever we said to God falls short of a true confession. The confession of our sins to one another brings healing, as James says, because it breaks the cycle of self-deception. If I'm willing to be honest with you, chances are my confession before God will be sincere as well. In the same way, if I choose to keep my sin in the dark, chances are I'm really not living in the light. I'm only deceiving myself when I go through the motions of what I'm supposed to do. Ultimately, it's a hard issue. But Scripture does speak to that interdependent relationship that we have with one another and with God. It's part of living in the light and one of the very unique characteristics of life inside the body of Christ. I hope you understand the very special gift of the relationships that God has granted us inside the church. Relationships that, like a marriage, give us the freedom to be the real me. Not so that we can be satisfied with our sin, but so that we can confess our sin, allowing God to heal our brokenness and to perfect us until the day of Christ Jesus. It's a means by which that cycle of self-deception can be broken in order that our humble repentance might bring healing to the glory and praise of God. But like in our marriage, we cannot experience this reality of relationship in the absence of trust. We need to know 
from each other. That you desire what's best for me. That you will not walk away. Especially in the midst of conflict. You see, conflict is inevitable in any relationship. The church being no exception. The only question is, is it healthy conflicts, conflict which protects unity? Or is it unhealthy conflict that creates division? Are you seeking the good of another, or are you asserting yourself and your own agenda? Unfortunately, we see more of the latter in the church today than the former. I say this because I believe that there are many people who leave one church to go from another because of unresolved conflict, so much so that I see that as being the main reason more than any other. And that's not a good trend. That being said, There may be a time, like Paul and Barnabas, when genuine efforts are made to resolve differences. There's no anger. There's no bitterness. Just as we see with the two of them, a right hand of fellowship that says, hey, let's carry on for the cause of Christ. And let's do so in love for one another. I see that as a healthy example because I don't see any resentment with Paul and Barnabas. Because ultimately, the sin of resentment is a false desire for honor. And we don't see that in either of their lives. So there's a healthy way to depart. But more often than not, unfortunately, that's not what we see in the church today. And I believe at the core is because we never made a commitment to each other in the first place. And more importantly, we've forgotten whose reputation is at stake when the church is fractured with broken relationships. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. That's not a simple recognition of, hey, I I bet that's a Christian. No, Jesus admonishes us to love one another because the testimony of the church gives evidence to the character of Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus admonishes us to love each other because our testimony gives evidence to the character of Christ. The world sees forgiveness in us because we have found forgiveness in him. The world sees love in us because we have been first loved by Him. They see peace in us because we have found peace in Him. The church gives evidence to the character of Christ. And so our primary motivation for resolving conflict in a healthy way that protects unity should be for the preservation of His reputation. We work through our differences to protect His name. But there's another reason. Healthy conflict is necessary because it is a sanctifying work in the life of every believer. I know I've told you this story several times, but I'm going to tell you again because it helps to make the point. On one occasion when I was working at the hospital as a department director, I was on my way to meet with my administrator. And as I was doing so, I was thinking about what was on the agenda, making sure I had everything in place and in order as I made my way to her office. And on my way, one of my employees 
stopped me in the hall, looked me straight in the eye, and said, Todd, why do you hate me? (laughs) I, I had no idea where this came from. And so she caught me off guard, and I had uh, to just stop and look at this sweet little speech pathologist and say, I I don't know whatever gave you the idea that I didn't like you, much less that I hated you. Why would you say that? Without skipping a beat, she said, it seems like every time you walk down this hall, you walk right past me, (laughs) sometimes looking right at me, and you don't say a word. What else am I supposed to think? Well, all I could do in that moment was apologize. And after having thought through it and talked to several people, I eventually went back to her and and thanked her for taking the time to share that with me because her confrontation of me that day revealed a blind spot that others were unwilling to tell me about. I know that because I asked several people after this situation. I said, did I ever do that? Oh, yeah, you do that all the time. Really? Thank goodness that this employee was willing to confront me in a sincere desire for something better in our relationship because without having done so, that would have continued to prove as a roadblock not only to that relationship but no telling how many others. Healthy conflict, conflict that seeks the higher good of another person is important because it reveals blind spots that otherwise go unnoticed. We see the same things in our marriage, don't we? In fact, if I ever talk to a couple, especially a young couple, about conflict and they tell me, oh, we don't ever fight. We always get along. We don't disagree about anything. I mean, i got red flags going up all over the place. Because healthy conflict is necessary for growth in any relationship. Nobody walks into a marriage with a full understanding of their spouse. In fact, the way we typically learn best about each other's needs is when we're not meeting them very well, right? Now, I need Terry to tell me, hey, when this happened, this is how it made me feel. I need her to tell me so that I can be a better father. Hey, Todd, you're spending a lot of time correcting and disciplining our kids, but they need you to go out and just be their dad for a little bit. I need her to tell me those things because her willingness to reveal these things helps my relationship grow with her and with my boys in a way that's simply not possible unless those conversations take place. And the same is true in the church. God uses healthy conflict to expose areas of our life that are not yielded to him and that may be hurtful to others. But it only happens within a circle of trust as we seek the higher good of another person, protecting the unity of the Spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And when we do it right, when we humble ourselves and work through conflict in a biblical manner, making sure to get the log out of our own eye before we start poking at the splinter in somebody else's, It's one of the most powerful means by which we are sanctified in our walk with Christ. In fact, it's a necessary part of the discipleship process. 
I think we have a great picture of this in the Scripture. It's a very short New Testament letter that written by Paul. Turn, if you will, to the book of Philemon. If you're in 1 John, you can turn left. It is just before Hebrews and right after Titus. Paul writes this letter from prison to a man named Philemon, which the book is named after. This man had a slave named Onesimus. And apparently Onesimus had stolen from Philemon and then ran away to Rome where he had a divine appointment with Paul who was imprisoned at the time. During this encounter, Paul leads this runaway slave to faith in Christ And now he is sending him back to his owner with this letter in hand. Now keep in mind that what Onesimus has done is no small crime. In fact, according to Roman law, he could have been killed, and very often that was the case for what he had done. And so for Paul to send him back, and even more so for Onesimus to be willing to return, was a huge step of faith. But I want you to see how... Paul uses this healthy conflict as a sanctifying work in the lives of these men. Perhaps it's most obvious with Onesimus. His willingness to to take this letter and return to his master demonstrated a, a heart of humility and repentance, knowing that it could cost him his life to live in the light. But Philemon had a choice as well didn't he? Once this runaway slave shows up at his door, he had to decide. Would he exert his authority and give the man his due punishment? Or would he humble himself and forgive him? Put aside his own rights in order to accept him back. I want you to notice what what Paul is doing by forcing this confrontation. Onesimus left as a slave, and and perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps he left because he was being treated as a slave, not with the dignity as a human being as he deserved. But now he stands at the door of Philemon's house as Philemon reads this letter from Paul. Look at what it says in verse 15. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Onesimus left as a slave, but he now returns to Philemon as a brother in Christ. And his presence there with him forces an issue. Philemon could do a number of things to this man as his owner, but he could only do one thing, one thing, as his brother in Christ. This encounter, encouraged by Paul, taught Philemon, perhaps better than anything else could have possibly done, the true meaning of forgiveness and grace. But it also taught Onesimus what it means to walk in the light with a humble, repentant heart. 
The result was a new, never experienced before relationship between these two men, as well as a deepened, more sanctified walk with Christ. That's what it does. Healthy conflict protects the reputation of Christ, and it is a sanctifying work in the life of the believer. And for that reason, a necessary part of the church. And I think it's a beautiful example of how Scripture tells us that regardless of the relationships that we have between us and government and us and our bosses and us with one another, that they are all girded with an unwavering commitment of love and grace and forgiveness. Now, if that is the depth of relationship that must exist inside the church, wouldn't you agree that we have a tremendous responsibility to care for each other with gentleness and grace like Paul encourages with Philemon and Onesimus. Wouldn't you agree? That's why Paul writes to the Romans and tells them to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to give preference to one another with honor. With humility of mind, he tells the Philippians, let each of you regard each other as more important than himself. It again reminds me of that husband and wife relationship where we are called to live with each other in an understanding manner. The church, like the marriage, is not a place for anyone to assert themselves. But instead, it is a place for humble, self-sacrificing service. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And when we care for others, let's make sure that we understand that it's not our job to fix them. Especially men, did you hear what I just said? <laughs> That's not one of the other, one another's. Thou shalt fix one another, okay? It's not in there. Instead, we should be quick to listen, as James says, slow to speak and slow to anger. It's what I call the ministry of holding one's tongue. And I believe it's one of the most important, perhaps most overlooked ministries of the church today. I bet when Onesimus shows up at Philemon's door, the most important thing in that encounter was not what was said in that moment, but it was what wasn't said that allowed the healing of that relationship to begin. More often than not, it is our silence which speaks louder than words. But that's hard, isn't it? It's difficult to, to give preference to one another in an understanding manner. So how do we conduct ourselves with this kind of gentleness and, and grace? I think there's a profound statement made by Paul that helps give us a clue about an answer to this question. He makes this statement as he's writing to Timothy a new young pastor, guiding him through what it means to serve others in this shepherding relationship. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says there's a lot of sinners in this world, but I... Paul, the apostle, and the worst of them all. 
Now, if this is your mindset, how might this affect how you interact with others? Because here's the deal. If my sinfulness ever seems to me smaller or less contemptible than yours, how can I possibly serve you in humility if I stand above you in pride? What Paul is telling Timothy is that his sin is not any prettier than anyone else's sin. Somehow giving him a a superior position over others. Instead, he is instructing this young pastor by telling him, you will be most effective in your ministry to others if you always keep in mind that no matter what anyone does, they are never a worse sinner than you are. That attitude of Paul is what I believe allowed him to live with others in an understanding manner with all grace and truth. And when this same attitude exists in us, this is where the beauty of the church really begins. This is where we're given the freedom to be the real me. Where true authenticity opens the door to true fellowship with God and with one another. The church should be the place where we learn that God loves us just the way we are, but He loves us too much to leave us that way. And so He places us, each one of us, as He desires in His church so that we sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. Working through conflict with all humility in such a way that the the name of Christ is glorified and the people of God are sanctified. Confessing together that Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the foremost of them all. Together, as Christ's redeemed people, we display the manifold wisdom of God. We preserve the unity of the Spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The mosaic of the church with all those broken pieces, when it's put together by God's design, it displays a portrait of Christ that is unmatched in the world today. And when we live according to His design, this is where the beauty begins. And listen to me, it only gets better with time. Let's pray together. God, we just come to you as a church family and we ask with all sincerity that you help us, guide us through your spirit to be the people that you've designed us to be in our relationship with one another and in our relationship with you. Help us to to walk in the light as you are in the light. Give us gentleness and grace towards each other so that we may be sanctified through that relationship as you would intend, drawing us closer to you, and most importantly, allowing us to collectively display your manifold wisdom to the world in a way that is unprecedented except that which is seen in the church. Help us, Father, to live that with utmost sincerity each day even more until the day you return. We long for that, we're thankful for that, and we are motivated by that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.